everybody and welcome to another episode of the talking space podcast this is talking space episode 702 for the week of monday april 6th 2015 i'm sawyer rosenstein and joining me tonight is gene mcculka welcome gene back from technical difficulty hell but we're here how you doing there sawyer i'm doing great (laughs) (laughs) welcome as well cassie aka craftless good evening sawyer and welcome as well, Kat Robison. Thank you. And welcome as well, Mark Raderman. I got a new three, two, one for you, but I'll save it till a little later in the show. All right, that sounds like a plan. So in the meantime, instead of saving things for later, let's jump right into the first part of our show. And we're going to do some quick news stories that you may have missed in the last few weeks while we were off the air. Uh, the first one being the Year in Space mission is finally underway. That's right. Astronauts Scott Kelly, as well as cosmonaut Mikhail Kornienko, are on their way and are at the International Space Station, beginning a mission of more than 340 days, almost a year, aboard the ISS. This is in anticipation of the eventual missions as we go beyond low Earth orbit, outward towards Mars, or wherever the final destination may be. That's another topic for later in the show. They will be testing the human body and its endurance to make sure that it can survive the one year in space, in addition to the lengthier missions that humans will be going on in the future. Anybody else have any quick additions for the year in space mission? It's very exciting that we get to test out some of the physiological effects because we have twins, one in space and one on Earth with the Kelly brothers. That's the uh, the twin experiment. Does anybody know how that's going to work or is that started as of yet or... They've actually already done testing. Um, Some of the testing was started pre-flight so they could test both Mark and Scott to establish baselines. And then as uh, Scott is in space, Mark will be down here and they will be doing concurrent testing, looking at how physiological, body morphology, things like that change during the year in space. Give us a better understanding in a way that we have not been able to do before of how the human body reacts in space compared to a very similar body on Earth. I just want to go ahead and uh, applaud a, uh, another fellow uh, New Jerseyan who is up there right now. That's Scott Kelly. Uh, he's, he's, I believe, from uh, from Orange. In fact, he tweeted out, or uh, I think it was actually not not on Twitter. I'm sorry, it was on Facebook. A uh, uh, an image of his old ID badge from when he was an ambulance driver back in 1982. And I thought that was rather cool. Also, just as uh, I know we just celebrated Easter a while back ago, but uh, he also posted a little visit from the Easter Bunny. There was a little stuffed rabbit sitting in the cupola flying in there, which which he fired out, which I thought was kind of cool. So that is quite cool. Uh, Their mission began, by the way, as was Expedition 43, March 27th, with the launch of the Soyuz TMA-16M to the ISS. Also on board, besides Scott and Mikael, was Gennady Padalka, who will be spending some time on the station, but not a full year. They joined Commander Terry Wirtz, who is commanding the ISS right now, as well as Anton Shkaplerov and Issa's Samantha Christopheretti. And sorry if I may add, Mr. Wirtz is no stranger to you. (laughs) Indeed, he is not. I do have a connection with Terry Verts and his family after the STS-130 launch, but it's great that he's commanding, you know, the station with his cupola that he helped put on in STS-130 back in 2010. Exactly what I was leading to. <laughs> but the International Space Station is very international, including all the experiments that will be done during this one-year mission. Most of the partners have experiments that were going to be done on these two astronauts, and three countries up there right now, U.S., Russia, and Italy. That's correct. And, and just as an aside, too, it, there was a, a report today out of uh, ITAR-TAS that the Russians will continue to support ISS, even though we're still not – even though with the political stuff that's been going on between the U.S. and, and Russia, 
the uh, Russians are still going to be maintaining their support of the International Space Station. So that is good news. Yes, there was also a report that came out uh, within the last few weeks that said that NASA and Russia would be starting a new space station together. However, NASA has denied that, although it is good news that Russia has said in that at least that they will be staying with the ISS until at least 2024. Yeah, sorry, to just really quick backfeed on that story, there was a lot of you know, a hullabaloo about that, and it sounded like to me, personally, that was a trial balloon on Russia's part, and it was hoping NASA would nibble, but when I saw that, I remembered that uh, Bill Gerstenmeier said himself, NASA's got no plans to... Once ISS is splashed, to go into the space station business again anyway. So it had the feel of a trial balloon, and it turned out to be that was indeed the case because I believe the uh, head of Roscosmos was trying to go ahead and kind of buttress his budget and try to get some more more money where he needed it. And unfortunately, that did not pan out. So, so yes, a bunch of ISS news there that you missed in the last few weeks. Another thing that um, will be coming up shortly, hopefully by the time this episode is released, is that we may get our first images of Pluto as New Horizons nears our outermost former planet, now dwarf planet. Pretty soon we should be getting images back, and later this year we should finally be getting the closest pictures and the best detailed pictures we've ever had of Pluto. Yeah, and if you, you do have a Twitter account, I really would recommend that you follow uh, one of the uh, the folks that have been really, really vocal about uh, what's been going on with uh, New Horizons. Kimberly Encino-Smith, she is one of the uh, New Horizon worker bees at this point. She's, she's the one I'm getting some of the information from, too. Uh, and she fired out, I believe it was either yesterday or to, earlier today, that uh, the uh, first color images should be coming down Friday. So we'll probably be discussing those images in in the next program. Indeed, and this is a mission that's been going on for quite a while. It launched back in January of 2006. Its closest flyby of Pluto is expected on July 14th of this year at a distance of about 12,500 kilometers or about 8,000 miles. So we're going to swing from the outermost edges of our little solar system here back inward. We're going to talk a little bit about where NASA is planning on going next. And there was actually an interesting piece released by Eric Berger of the Houston Chronicle that suggests that the next step may actually be back to the moon. Yeah, Sawyer, this came out, I believe it was just last week. Eric Berger from the Houston Chronicle started a little bit of a, a little bit of a tempest here, indicating that uh, senior NASA managers are quote, quietly working on a manned lunar mission as part of an evolvable Mars campaign, as Berger wrote. Now, according to the article, uh, Bill Gerstemeyer, NASA's Associate Administrator for Human Exploration and Operations, doesn't really think that the 900-day direct-to-Mars mission that was originally proposed by the White House is doable. He doesn't really have a lot of faith in that. Uh, so he's looking at using the moon as sort of a way station, if you will, for you know fuel or, or anything like that. This isn't sort of a flags and footprints type thing. This is more of a step-by-step -step sustainable path to Mars. And, uh, well, Berger was saying because of what they've got in mind, it's kind of putting NASA in a, well, a delicate position because it's flying into the face of what the White House is saying. If you recall a speech that uh, the president gave back in 2010, he called the moon essentially your your daddy's space program and said, been there, done that, you know, have the T-shirt, it's time to go, go to Mars. Well, the problem is we're seeing now how the moon sort of fits in with that uh, that whole thing, and this may sound familiar, and I've said this may have said this on this program before, that I always thought that the moon would, would be a pretty good test bed, if you will, for Mars anyway. I mean, grant you, you don't have the atmosphere, right, that Mars has, but you could still test, you know, your landing operations. You can still test your habitability modules, uh, and if something goes wrong, you're three days away from a cheeseburger and a malt beverage, if something goes wrong while you're going out to Mars and you haven't really done your due diligence and you haven't really done your hardcore testing, even if it's something as minor 
as the toilet breaking down, theoretically, you've just killed the crew. So the moon is is still kind of, in my eyes, a test bed for this. And that's where I think NASA's going here. There, there's, uh, as this audience probably is well aware, there's water locked in the surface of the moon somewhere, especially around the South Pole area. Now, you could probably use that water for hydrogen fuel and use this area as a base of operations to pop over to Mars. So, again, it's a fuel depot. It's a place to do your experimentation to make sure that you, you've got all your I's dotted and T's crossed. Plus, it's a way to cut our teeth on going into planetary again. We're not saying we're going to stay there. We're saying we're going to use the resources there. And I think NASA's kind of figured that one out. What was really hysterical was the reaction afterward. Mark Whittington in The Examiner wrote an interesting little piece on the whole thing. He kind of basically gave a 50,000-foot view of the original Eric Berger article. But he threw this whole thing in saying that, quote, a lunar effort would be a way to demonstrate NASA's superiority to the Chinese. And I'm sitting there and I'm like – where did that come from? I, I personally don't think NASA really, really cares about what China's space program is up to. And I don't think the White House really does either. I don't see that in the foreign policy mosaic that I've, I've seen from this administration thus far. So I'm not too sure that's a valid argument. I do agree with the author, though, when he said that the international partners would probably jump at the idea, too, to get to the moon. And this is something, too, that's also been backed up by, a, I believe, a National Research Council report, too, that Eric Berger did cite in his article. Well, Marsha Smith, to give you a little bit of another take on this, a few days later wrote a piece because she talked to NASA. Stephanie Sherholtz, who is the, uh, the NASA spokesperson in this instance, basically said, well, we've always planned to use this lunar space and so on. So in essence, she kind of said, you know, nothing to see here, move along. Eric kind of took umbrage to that one too, saying, nope, he stood by his article, fired back, gave all of his proof and said, here it is, just keep your eyes peeled. Now, I kind of think, and guys, I don't know how you feel about this, but I think the ghost of Constellation lives <laughs> in what we're seeing here. I, I think we're, we're seeing essentially Constellation light. What do you guys think? With this news that's coming out and with conversation when Cassie and I were at the International Astronautical Congress back in 2014 in October, it became very clear that the consensus among the scientists, the astronauts there, the historians, pretty much everyone there, as many of us have been arguing for quite some time, is that we need the moon as a base for future Mars missions or any future long-term exploration. We need to be able to test, as you said, Gene, these technologies before we go and use them in a place that's really too far away for us to affect any sort of or to help with any sort of negative outcome should an emergency happen. And just coming at this from the point of someone who looks at politics and science, this is something that happens when you have programs at agencies, and specifically for us, programs at NASA, that are dependent solely on the political will of the people and the politicians who represent them. NASA is very dependent on what politicians want. They can submit budgets, they can submit ideas, but it is typically the administration and Congress who gets to decide what direction our space program goes. And this kind of quiet backtracking and saying President Obama basically called the moon something that was better left for other people or other generations from the past to explore really kind of demonstrated the lack of understanding that many politicians have about, and the general public, I might add, about the long-term investment needed for any space mission. We can't get to Mars if we're not willing to make a 20- or 30-year commitment to sustained funding. And all of that goes back to we have to elect people who have the political will to commit to allowing NASA multi-year budgets. 
because the current system that works where we're um, having to reauthorize every year and we can't guarantee funding, you know, we've mentioned before that the Orion missions, EFT1, 2, EM1, and 2, they're the only funding that there is for Orion. There's no funding after that. There's actually no funding for a mission beyond testing. So this comes back to NASA is constrained by what politicians say and what politicians want and what politicians decide. And if those politicians lack the scientific literacy and the budgetary understanding to commit to long-term projects, we get something like the articles that are coming out today or coming out this week. Yeah, Kat, I know the Planetary Society over the weekend, this past weekend, had a by-invitation-only symposium or a little workshop, as they referred to it. It was conducted by former NASA, former NASA Associate Administrator Scott Hubbard and John Logston, who is, uh, I believe, Professor Emeritus over at the Elliott School of Science, Technology, and Public Policy over at George Washington University. He founded that. They had a symposium about about Mars and how we're going to get there. And I believe the symposium discovered that if the current budget path goes, uh, they determined that with you know inflation-adjusted funding, we could probably achieve Mars orbit right now by about 2033 and with a landing attempt about 2039. And this is, again, within... The, the current budget uh, constraints. They're also saying that the funding would also probably come mostly from when the ISS is finally decommissioned and shut down. A lot of, a lot more funding would be poured into into the Mars program. But again, we're we're working on that. The problem, though, Kat, is I'm I'm thinking is that NASA, like it or not, is an arm of the executive branch. It gets its marching marching orders from the executive branch. And again, when you've got that, you've got political will and political uh, shenanigans going on. And indeed, sometimes, and sometimes I agree, politicians sometimes are not, how could I put it, scientifically informed and make pretty lousy decisions based on bad data. To be honest, Gene, I think the best thing that could ever happen for our space program from a purely political standpoint, I want to make that very clear, is for China to land someone on the moon. Can I ask why? I I actually, I really agree with you on that, Kat. I've been saying the same thing for quite a few years now. Um, And it's largely because in a geopolitical sense, in a lot of ways, China is our new Russia as far as competitiveness. And we need to get the will of the people. We need somebody to be competing against like that, like the same way that we had the space race in the Apollo era. And the words right out of my mouth. (laughs) Yes. Well, I'm sorry, but (laughs) they're the only country that we haven't been actively working with already. That could be really just a competitor because if they want to be, they can be. And they've expressed a lot of interest in going to the moon. Yeah, but it shouldn't be about competition anymore. It should be about the fact that, hey, the nations are actually working well enough together that we can pool our resources together, make it cheaper to go anywhere we want in the solar system. And I do I appreciate the- I completely agree. I'm, I'm gonna throw something in real- It should be that way. Yeah, exactly. it should be, but- you know, I, I'm. Let's not be naive here either. There's there's too many issues between China and Russia. To I mean, between China and the United States, to get to that point. If you recall, AS, the, the Apollo Series test flight that happened because there was now a level of trust between the two nations, between between Russia and the United or the Soviet Union and the United States, and as a result of that period of detente, ASTP was born. We don't have that period right now between China and the United States yet. And that has to happen in order for us really, really to begin cooperation. And we are a long way from that. But if I'm not mistaken, isn't NASA the only part of the U.S. government that is strictly forbidden from working with China? 
It's not. I don't believe it's NASA. I think uh, just NASA. I, I can look that up, but I don't believe it's just the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Uh, the reason why, again, is technology transfer issues and, of course, ITAR and all that stuff. And we don't want critical technologies going to a state that theoretically could use it against us. Yeah, and just to kind of bookend my comment about China, the big reason that I say this is what would be necessary to really reinvigorate our nation's interests, it has to do with American exceptionalism and how the American public as a whole perceives itself and its relationship to what the American public would perceive to that ability to translate that perception into political will. It would take something like somebody's on our ground, somebody's on our turf, to generate that type of popular public support needed to generate the political will. Yeah, and that, again, that is the biggest thing is the will of the public because right now everyone's thoughts with NASA are why are we wasting money on space when we have all these things on Earth? And we'll get to more spinoffs later in the show, but that's the biggest problem is overcoming that. With the moon program, it was in the 60s, it was, hey, we got to beat the Russians like you were saying earlier. So I see why, you know, in some instances it's good to have that competition, but – to have that joint effort is also an interesting battle. So it's kind of, it's it really is at this point just a public relations battle. You know, do we have the will to go? And right now, I don't think we do. It's going to take a mindset change. Sorry, I agree. And it should be interesting to see how. And I hate to put it this way, in another political context, but it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out in the next election. So I know it was kind of belittled a little bit in the 2012 election, uh, or at least space policy was in any case. So we'll have to see if it's taken seriously in, in 2016. I have my doubts. Right, and I should add the big thing with that public perception is what is enough to get people's ideas of going back into space exciting? The year in space, people are actually interested in it, so that's a good start. Is going back to the moon enough? I would hope so because I – agree with what we were saying earlier that the moon is the next step but i think we need something like mars for people to say hey this is something unique and something that we should do because it's never been done before and it's you know american superiority in space what we're talking about here is going back to the moon specifically to prepare for mars the thing is the long-range goal of mars it needs more baby steps than the obama plan and actually Going to the moon makes a lot more sense than going to an asteroid just because we haven't done it before, because there's more advantages to being on the moon than there are to being on Vesta. Yeah, Cassie, I'll agree. I think, we, I think we're, we're kind of getting hung up on going to the moon. We're not talking the moon being the end game here. We're not talking, at all. No, and, and I want to clarify that. We're talking about the moon being a stepping stone off to Mars. And the real advantage of the moon, as well as as a testing ground, is at, just for going to Mars would also be in the future as a testing ground for colonization. Absolutely. The moon should be a catalyst for future exploration and not seen as something we've been there, done that. We really need to reframe the discussion. And I think people are starting to be successful in doing that, but reframe this discussion as the moon is the catalyst for the next step. Agreed. That's the best way to put it. I think we're mostly in agreement on this one. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> but uh, the one thing I do like is I do like hearing the opposing opinions. And uh, we got some great listener comments on the last episode, so we want to hear more from you guys. What are your thoughts? Email them to us, mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com. A few of you tweeted at us at TalkingSpace, and we also have our Facebook page. We do check that, Facebook.com slash TalkingSpace. So where do you think we should go next? All right. So while we're talking about things coming up in the near future of, you know, like about 10 or 15 years from now, well, apparently NASA's head scientist made a pretty big announcement about something within the next 10 years, and it has to do with alien life. But let me just say right now, I'm not going to be like one of those clickbait sites. I'll say it right now. We're not talking real green aliens or ET. We're talking smaller extraterrestrial life. I'll pass it off to you now, Gene. Yeah, thanks, Sawyer. Uh, just, I believe, yesterday as we're recording, today is April 9th, NASA's chief scientist, Ellen Stofan, said during a publicly aired event on NASA television, quote, I believe we're going to have strong indications of life beyond Earth in the next decade and definitive evidence in the next 10 to 20 years. 
So what did she mean by that? I don't think she's talking about we're going to look at the Hubble Space Telescope and see a bunch of little green men looking up at it and going, take me to your leader. Uh, I think she's talking about evidence that indeed there's plant life, there's there's algae and so on. I mean, you know, you can look through at a telescope or you can take readings at a distant world and see its chemical makeup from that and get readings and so on in that direction. I think that's what she's looking for. There are certain things we might may be able to pick up that, that new instruments will be able to go ahead and tell us that indeed there's there's the constituent parts of life on this particular world. And we'll know for sure if indeed life is possible elsewhere in the universe in 20 years. Now, the problem is the press got a hold of this or the mainstream press, and all of a sudden Twitter and Facebook all lit up like, oh, wow, we're going to hear from E.T. in about 20 years. They, NASA says so. And not really. We're going to know for sure that life may be possible on another world in about 10, 15, 20 years. Not that we're going to get a signal from an extraterrestrial civilization in 10 or 20 years or know that there's some thinking being somewhere on this planet. We may discover that there are signatures or constituent parts of life on this world, but the universe could be, or this galaxy alone, could be teeming with single-cell organism, plants, and and maybe little little animals, but big beasts and big thinking beings, as Carl Sagan postulated, might be comparatively rare. So we'll have to see. We'll have to see how this goes. But again. I have to say, hey, guys, tone it down, please. We're not talking about take me to your leader stuff. We're not talking about, you know, your Gort coming out of his big machine and an alien coming out saying we come in peace or anything like that. We're talking simply about finding out that indeed the constituent signatures of life are possible on another planet. We are not talking about E.T. You know, we're not talking about E.T. coming over and saying, ouch, you know, or anything like that. So, chill. Hey, Gene, I just wanted to throw in just a quick correction. Stefan actually, uh, NASA chief scientist Ellen Stefan actually said uh, we would have definitive evidence within 20 to 30 years, not 10 to 30 years. Yeah, um, I, I heard I heard 10, 10 to 30. and the, I'm looking at her quote right now. So all right, cool. Thank you. Says, Sure. She says we're going to have strong indications of life within a decade and then definitive evidence within 20 to 30 years. Thanks, Kat. You know what's staggering to me, though? Growing up as a small child, we didn't know even for sure if there were planets around other stars. We're the first generation to figure that one out to say for sure, not only are there planets, but there may be planets with life on it, and in about 30 years' time, we'll find out for sure if indeed the signature of life is somewhere in one of these worlds. So that, you know, goosebumps time, guys. What's really amazing about you mentioning that is this is the week that I talk about science and technology in America with my American identity class that I teach at my university. And we actually listened to a good portion of Kennedy's moon speech. And he talks about how quickly science moves within that speech. And I got to talk about with my class, hey, what he said over 50 years ago is still very applicable to the types of scientific advancement and leaps and bounds that we're seeing today. It is exciting. So no, we're not going to see any any little green men anytime soon, except for you know probably in the X-Files reboot which I'm very excited about. But uh, as for actual life on other planets, we're looking at your microscopic microbial life that we're looking for firm evidence of within that time frame that, that was given by NASA's chief scientist. And this is why NASA on Earth is currently studying extremophiles like crazy because that's going to be much more like what we might find out there than it'll be like us or our pets. <laughs> Probably be much more like cave dwellers here and and stuff um, and all kind of microbes that we've been finding just in the past decade or two right here on Earth, uh, all kinds of life that 
we didn't think could exist even when I was a kid or didn't know existed. So, I mean, we have to keep in mind that those are more like what we're going to be looking for in space than uh, most of what we all like, you know, think of as life. Yeah, we're not talking E.T. phone home here. And I think the biggest thing, again, we're talking like with the moon one, too, is the public perception. It gets people's attentions. Aliens. Oh, my goodness. Little green men is what you think of. But got to get the public's mind around the fact that life is a lot smaller than we think. It's not just creatures with two arms and two hands, but little cells and microbes and bacteria, too. Because, I mean, the fact that there's this much interest in it, though, it's a good start because that means that, hey, maybe people will be interested more in funding more into planetary science too agreed sawyer which makes and i'm i'm gonna get on my titan bandwagon one more time it's one of those worlds that i think deserves a second look and we need to go ahead and and really really get there i still want to see that submarine looking around underneath the the methane seas on on titan who knows what might be swimming in there Exactly. And then comes the whole thing of what if there is other life and what does that mean? Well, we've got plenty of time to discuss that. We've got about 10 to 30 years to figure that out. But if we do, that will be very, very exciting. The question is, how are we going to find it and where are we going to find it? And we don't know. And that's what makes science so exciting. All right. So now to wrap up the show, we've got a few segments that so far we did on the first episode. And we think we're going to keep these going for a little while. And of course, one of them involves... OMG robots, literally OMG robots, and I'll let Mark get into more about his team and the updates from the first robotics program. Thanks, Sawyer. Something that I kind of scramble through in, in talking about first and the first robotics competition is something I became real aware of. Uh, last week, our team traveled to Houston, Texas. Long, long drive. Holy cow. And uh, we saw a whole different group of teams and teams that we weren't familiar with because our team has competed at Orlando for the this year and the previous four years. And this was the Houston crowd, about 40 teams from Texas. And what I wanted to mention is there are awards. And it's not just who wins because one of the things that Dean Kamen says is that this is more than robots. So I'm just going to ramble through real quick a few of these awards to give you an idea of the scope and of who some of the backers are for these awards. The Chairman's Award is the most prestigious award at first. It honors the team that best represents a model for other teams to emulate and best embodies the purposes and goals of first. The Chairman's Award will give the team the automatic invitation to the national championships or the world championships in St. Louis. Incidentally, the championships are coming up in a couple of weeks. They are going to involve about 17,000 kids ages 6 to 18. It's going to cover the first Lego League, first Tech Challenge, and FRC, the first robotics competition. It's going to take place at four different venues, Union Station, Renaissance Grand Hotel, America Center, and the Edward Jones Dome in St. Louis. This is big. It's really big. It takes a whole lot of people to make it happen. But back to the awards. There's a Creativity Award sponsored by Xerox, an Engineering Inspiration Award that celebrates outstanding success in advancing respect and appreciation for engineering within a team, school, and community. So again, this is more than just the robot. There's an Entrepreneurship Award I mentioned last time we talked. There's an Excellence in Engineering Award sponsored by Delphi. There is, of course, the finalist of the events. There is the winner of the event both teams get recognition and for they have certainly accomplished a lot the first dean's list award celebrates outstanding student leaders whose passion for and effectiveness at attaining first ideals is exemplary there's the future innovative award sponsored by the abbott fund the founders award the Gracious Professionalism Award sponsored by Johnson & Johnson, and that celebrates the team that exemplifies core values of first in their relationship with other teams and their demonstrated gracious professionalism. There's the Highest Rookie Seat Award. There's the Imagery Award in honor of Jack Kamen. That's Dean Kamen's father. Industrial Design Award sponsored by General Motors. An Industrial Safety Award sponsored by Underwriters Laboratories. Innovation and Control Award sponsored by Rockwell Automation. 
Judges Award, Media Technology Innovation Award, Quality Award sponsored by Motorola, Rookie All-Star Award, Rookie Inspiration Award, Safety Animation Award sponsored by UL, that's UL as in Underwriters Laboratory, and I'm going to have a link to a video that was from the team that won this national award. They're called BERT Robotics. And you think, Bert, that sounds like a, a, a children's entertainment character. Nope. In this case, Bert is an acronym, a Bonnie Eagle Robotics Team. They're from Standish, Maine, and they won the Annual Safety Animation Award. We'll have a link to the video. I think you'll enjoy it. To me, it's still phenomenal that safety is such a highly stressed part of FIRST Robotics that, as they say, we want everybody to go home with all the fingers and toes and everything that you came here with. That's how we want you to go home. So safety is stressed, and uh, this, this little animation, about 30, 40 seconds, is a lot of fun to watch. So I mentioned the awards. You get an idea of how many there are, how varied there are. There's a Volunteer of the Year Award. It takes volunteers to make this happen. Lots and lots and lots of people. And they deserve recognition. And some of them, you know, what they contribute to the competitions, to the events themselves, and to first, you know, through the year in many cases, is, again, exemplary. So, oh, Team Spirit Award, sponsored by Chrysler. <laughs> you look at some of the pictures or you watch the uh, competitions, which is the last thing I'll mention before I go, and you see some of the most, most outrageous things. In Houston, there was one team that had a couple of the team members. And I believe they were the, the young ladies who had longer hair, but they had their hair straight up in a spike that looked like it was about 18 inches or longer in a, in a spike sticking up straight off their head. And that's part of the team spirit. It's part of the definite fun blended throughout first. I mean, they say it's the hardest fun you'll ever have, and it puts the students through certainly what is every bit as grueling as, as a tough month, a tough quarter, or a tough whatever period of time you want to think about in the working world. And they enjoy it such an incredible amount. So I guess the last thing is the championship that I mentioned that's coming up, uh, the number of people, St. Louis, it is the following dates, April 22nd through April 25th. If you go to thebluealliance.com slash events, thebluealliance.com slash events, they will add links to webcast. There are two, four, six, eight, nine different fields that will be played on simultaneously at St. Louis. And I imagine that many, if not all of those, will have live web live webcasts. And uh, the qualification events, that's Thursday and Friday, probably winding up Saturday with the finals, quarterfinals on all of those fields will happen Saturday. It'd be interesting to watch. You'll see, you'll see a lot of really innovative uh, robots that these students have built all on their own. And I want to thank Talking Space for the opportunity to talk about this. I've been in a, you know, heavily involved with it since January, and we're making plans for what we're going to do in the off season. And I'm excited to be a part of it. Hey, Mark, how did your team do in the competition? Where did you guys finally end up? In a nutshell, Get Smart from Lake City, Florida, Columbia High School, Team 3556. Uh, we improved over our performance in Orlando. In Orlando, we made it to the quarterfinals. In Houston, we also made it to the quarterfinals. And, oh, <laughs> let me tell you, one of the top teams at Houston, in fact, they were on the winning alliance, is Team 118, the Robonauts. Does, oh, cool. <laughs> does, does, does Robonauts sound like it might have a connection with NASA? Yeah. Well, we had one free day there in Houston, and we uh, took advantage of that and went to Johnson Space Center, and we took the tourist-type tour of, of some of their operation. And I forget the name of the building. It's another acronym. I'm sorry. I, I just got too many in my head at once. But we're, we're going down this, you know, uh, second-level uh, walkway overlooking a work area that reminds me of the space station processing facility at Kennedy, a big massive crane that you can you can move 
modules that are the twins to, to what's up on station currently. And as we're walking down, we get down to the last quarter of the building, and it's like, whoa, that's a robot. Holy cow, look at all those winning banners. And uh, they had a, a full, I think it was probably almost a full-sized competition field like you'll see at, at St. Louis and these other events. And uh, they had a second robot. They built two. One was uh, bagged up, sealed, ready to go to the, to the Houston competition. And they had a second robot that was there to practice with. So they got phenomenal support from NASA and, and no doubt that and the engineers that are so much a part of Johnson Space Center and NASA overall really, um, you know, gave that team, you know, something special in terms of the expertise that was shared with the students to, to do what they did. And they built an absolutely awesome robot. I mean, you watch it and you go, holy cow, it's, it's doing everything. And a lot of it was doing on a, on some automated setup, which, you know, that taught us a little bit that, the way our robot operated, there were parts of it that were automatic and parts of it that were completely manual, driver-controlled. And so we need to work on our automation and make some things happen where the, the driver, two drivers actually, are not having to, to every single uh, action. But uh, it was crazy surprising and uh, fun to see what the hometown favorite, I guess you'd call it, although there were 40 teams from Texas, so I don't know that any of them had hometown favorites sewn up. But, uh, yeah, that was another nice little bonus. So we made it to the quarterfinals in Houston. We were improved over Orlando. We improved. The robot was improved. You know, if we had gone to a, a third event this year, I think the team would have fallen over from exhaustion because it takes a lot to get to these, particularly the ones that are a long distance away. But, um, you know, I think we'd continue to improve. And we learned a lot, had a great time. Thanks for asking. Appreciate that. Bravo to your team, Mark, and bravo to anybody who competed in this. This this sounds like it was a lot of fun, and it was a grand learning experience for everybody involved. So so thanks so much, and Mark, thanks for lending your talents to uh, to all of that. It was a, a indeed a worthwhile endeavor. So again, hats off to everybody that competed. And I got to say, not being used to being around high school students, I, I go to work. I drive my my government vehicle inside the airport and I don't see anybody most of the day if I'm out on the field for the day. But, uh, you know, being with the team, uh, myself and another adult, we were the drivers for a van full of, uh, of the students. And, uh, they are, they're such a good bunch of, of students. They really are. They amazed me with their consideration for other people. And at the same time, just total 100% plus interest in having fun. So uh, that was a part of the whole experience that really surprised me is how much fun it was to be around these students and these future engineers. That's where they're headed. And that's the uh, most exciting part of it all. Indeed. And you're sparing them off, Mark. So again, hats off to you. Yes. Thank you, Mark, for doing this and for coming on and talking about it each week, too. And of course, as always, links for more information and to Mark's team and their Twitter account and everything will be in the show notes. Sure. On Twitter, it's at FRC3556. Get smart. They have a uh, Facebook page, which I forget exactly what that is. I can get that link and we'll include that as well. All the links to that will be in the show notes. Definitely go and check them out and definitely go and support the amazing work that they're doing and that Mark is doing and all of these students are doing. And that's the key point there. These are all students doing this amazing work. Before we wrap things up, we have one more thing to go over. And a lot of people forget how much of the things that go up into space come back and affect us here on Earth. And that's why we've been doing segments at the end of each episode so far this season, talking a little bit about NASA spin-offs or technologies that were originally designed for some use in space and have come back to help us here on Earth. And we're going to continue that with Cassie and another NASA spin-off to finish off this episode. What do you have for us this week? This week, actually, I'm going to ask Gene to pitch in on this one because I know he's a huge baseball fan. But this is amazing technology because it started with Spirit and Opportunity, the pictures that they sent back from their little one megapixel cameras. And then some really wonderful, talented people, some of whom a bunch of us personally like a lot, came up with the idea of putting it all together into these giant images utilizing multiple single megapixel images. 
Well, that went on to be developed through NASA and Carnegie Mellon University. They brought that to market back a few years ago, and it's now spun off into various consumer applications. But probably the most exciting is what it's doing for Major League Baseball. You want to talk about that some more, Gene? Yeah, sure, Cassie. Just to recap here a little bit. So what the devil does Major League Baseball and the Mars Exploration Rover Spirit and Opportunity have in common? Well, here's what's, what's going on. Now, as Cassie, you alluded to, each rover took a one megapixel camera for its journey out to Mars uh, to send back images. However, they've kind of become famous for measuring up to about 96 megapixels in size. And, and actually, I'd like to put in just a quick plug for the artists who work at JPL who started putting these together because those pictures, as anybody who has seen the pictures from Spirit and Opportunity knows, are spectacular. Yeah, agreed. Anyway, this whole thing is made possible by a NASA-developed automated tripod, which kind of helps seamlessly put the images and all the series of shots that are taken that were taken by Spirit and are currently being taken by Opportunity together. It kind of just melds them into one beautiful piece. Well, as you alluded to, Cassie, NASA and Carnegie Mellon got together and bought brought up the first supersized digital picture technology to market and they called it something called called the Gigapan. And it got the attention of Major League Baseball because the idea behind this was to go ahead and drill down in these large mosaic type pictures to try to see if you can drill down deeper and deeper into them. And to kind of give the idea that, hey, if you attend a baseball game, you too can find yourself in this large mosaic and say, hey, there I am. I'm part of this game. I'm in this picture. So that's what Major League Baseball was doing with this technology. So if you go on to – I believe the spinoff article pointed out, uh, for instance, the Detroit Tigers – their marketing coordinator said the technology came at a pretty good time for them and the organization because they had a photo booth in the park, but because it's been there so long, it really wasn't piquing fan interest all that much. But they'd started using this technology, and all of a sudden, not only interest in that particular little photo booth started coming about, but also you'd see pictures of the game that fans went to on social media, pointing themselves out in the stands and so on. So it kind of got a lot of social media buzz going, not only about the stadium, but about the teams involved and so on. So it gave Major League Baseball a lot of brand exposure too out there on social media. Plus, it's it, it was something exciting for the fans too to say, hey, there I am. You see that? I attended this game. I was part of it. So it, it kind of took the fan to, to say, hey, this is part of me. This was part of my life for that day. And I participated in this event. So again, this is, this is a little bit of NASA technology. The reason why, again, th this week over here in the United States, the national pastime started. Major League Baseball kicked off their opening week this week. And I thought it was kind of interesting to see, hey, what's one of the, the sports-related NASA spinoffs that we could go ahead and tell folks about and how it relates not only to the game but how it makes and enhances the game. And again, something that you never really think of. You never really put together a Mars rover and Major League Baseball together. So again, a piece of NASA technology coming back to help out in, a, in marketing a baseball game. Who Who knew? <laughs> Who knew indeed? And uh, play ball. And thank you, NASA. All I can think of is when uh, Mike Massimino carried up the home plate from Shea Stadium of the New York Mets when he went to Hubble back on STS 125. So there are some NASA connections to baseball, too, and also the Houston Astros. But this is a different connection that you might not think of. And I love learning about all these new spinoffs. So thank you, both of you, this time for the spinoffs. Yep. More on the way. I like this. I very much like this topic. So with that, that brings this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Want to give two shout outs. One to Ray Poole 
uh, who has been one of our champions out there. He is fighting uh, a really, really nasty form of cancer, and I, he's been really one of our cheerleaders out there, and I really want to wish him well. And uh, also Vicki Dunclaff, who also is in the same boat. She's also fighting a, a battle with, with that disease as well. I want to give her a shout-out, and we're pulling for, for you both. Good luck. Godspeed to you both. And I am so looking forward to 703 here. <laughs> Oh, me too. Thank you as well for joining us, Cassie Tamanini, a.k.a. Craftless. Thank you very much, Sawyer. Thank you for joining us, Kat Robinson. Always a pleasure. And thank you for joining us, Mark Raderman. I promised and almost forgot my new countdown. We're used to three, two, one, ignition, liftoff, and such. Well, from First Robotics, it's three, two, one, rush. <laughs> 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 The name of the game this year is recycle. The name of the game this year is recycle rush, and uh, so three, two, one, rush, and then, <laughs> then the timer starts. Drivers behind the lines. Three, two, one, rush. Oh, keep so, that bar! I love it. I love it. Oh, I love it. Keep it. So thanks, everybody. See you next time. Yes, thank you for joining us. Thank you for the great insurgence of listeners, all these people coming back after three months off. We appreciate all of the old listeners coming back and all the new people who are joining in on the show. Hope you enjoy it. In the meantime, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are. And three, two, one, rush. Rush.